Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello, I'm Andrew Hill, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Professor G.K. Cunningham of the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations here at the U.S. Army War College. G.K., welcome to A Better Peace. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So G.K. has appeared with us previously on another podcast in the Great Captain series. G.K. and I talked about the great Carthaginian military leader Hannibal Barca. And today we're going to be talking about Hannibal's historical foil, his opponent in the latter stages of the Second Punic War, Scipio, who came to be known as Africanus because of his achievements in leading the Roman army to victory. But before I do so, I just want to give GK the introduction that he deserves. GK served uh, an honorable career as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, GK, you were an infantryman, correct? In the, I was indeed. In the, in the Marines and retired from the Marine Corps a few years ago and uh, has been a fixture here at the Army War College on the faculty since. Uh, so GK, again, thanks, thanks for being here. And so I wanted to begin with a general question just to orient our listeners, because oftentimes in the Great Captain series, we, we talk about people that are well-known to sort of the average person who's got a, a working knowledge of history. Scipio is not as well known as his opponent. Hannibal is famous for, you know, leading the Carthaginians across the Alps and for the Battle of Cannae. Scipio a little less so. So who was he, GK? Who's Scipio Africanus? And maybe generically, why should we be talking about him? Well, I think it's uh, interesting that just as Hannibal was a product of his time, uh, Scipio was a product of his time and his family. The Cornelian family, of which he was a, uh, a part and a leading figure, had been around for about 200 years. In fact, in that 200-year period, the Cornelian family held 20 different consulships in Rome. So he's a product of a long family, an illustrious family, one of the great families of ancient Rome. And uh, he's remarkable in that he seems to have been a man who was prepared and ready to assume great responsibilities in his time. And when that time was passed, he was quickly moved to the side in terms of his prominence and uh, was happy to do that. You, you mentioned his preparation. And how would a, a, a young Roman noble be prepared for command, for a career in the military? Well, at this time, it's very common, even for the patrician class, to establish themselves as a military reputation. Rome is, is an agrarian nation by and large, but everyone is expected to engage in, in warfare. In fact, there are, there are close to 60 senators who die at Cani fighting as foot soldiers. So this is common. You establish yourself politically in, in certain measure by your, your military accomplishments. And there were a series of positions kind of analogous to what the U.S. military has, or sorry, the Army, at least, I know, has key developmental positions. Sort of an analogy, correct, for, for a Roman, a young Roman man, where he would be expected to serve in certain developmental positions, and, and that would culminate in 
well, in the case, the most prominent case would be a consulship where you're, you're literally in command of the entire state's armed forces. That's correct. Uh, you, you generally start off as a, as a young, uh, often a foot soldier, but as a member of a petition class would soon become a tribune at various different levels. And once you became through a tr- tribune, you would be eligible for increasing levels of responsibility. It's much like our stratified officer system now, though there were far fewer ranks to be held. Yeah. Well, and what's consistently surprising to me when you look at warfare in the ancient world is how young uh, many of these prominent commanders are when they achieve their greatest successes. I mean, Hannibal is is quite young uh, when he is most effective in command of of the Carthaginian forces and their allies. In our minds, I think we often equate uh, experience with higher levels of responsibility. And that's not really always the case in the ancient world. No, not at all. In fact, uh, the rules for becoming a consul had to be set aside for Scipio Africanus when he was made a consul, specifically because he was too young for the position in terms of Roman law. but back then, uh, the commanders do tend to be young, often because the methodology of warfare is so hard, moving by foot and marching or riding by horseback in many cases, and the risks so great in close combat with, with spears and swords that you didn't survive to be an old soldier. In fact, a, a Roman veteran was considered a veteran at 17 years, and usually retired at 20 at full compensation. Yeah, and they'd gone through, I mean, they'd been through a lot by, by that point, surviving 20 years in the Legion. You you, you earned your retirement. Uh, so you mentioned Scipio was present at Cannae, which is, um, I don't know, you might disagree with this, but probably the most significant Roman defeat in its in its early history, um, endures in the Roman mind as a, as a kind of signal event, a national crisis, uh, the, the, the time when the Roman state came the closest to being eliminated. And, and Scipio is a part of that. He's, he's a participant in the battle, uh, one of actually relatively few survivors considering the numbers of, of Roman uh, soldiers engaged. How do you think that affected him in command later on? Like what, what, I mean, this is obviously impossible to know, but how do you think his experience in that battle, which was such a disaster for Rome, shaped his his attitudes as a commander? It had a tremendous amount of impact on him. Uh, it really was launched his military career. Um, there were a group of uh, survivors at the end of that whose intent was not to go back to Rome, but to sail to Greece and offer themselves as mercenaries there. He intervened and threatened to kill anyone who uh, himself that would try to execute such a plan and brought them back to to uh, to Rome. Uh, and Rome tended to be fairly magnanimous with people who try hard and, and failed. Uh, even Varro, who was the consul who was responsible for the loss, was still accepted back and, and not given a triumph, but at least credited with the fact that having he tried and he didn't quit. Uh, to quit for a Roman was unforgivable. To be defeated was just something which happened and, and should be overcome. So when he brings that back, he marks a name for himself. And he spends much of his time, particularly in his campaigns in the Iberian Peninsula, in trying to replicate that battle 
in Roman terms, and he uh, works very diligently to do so and comes across that in, in many of his battles in Spain. He is attempting to do the same thing to his enemies that he saw Hannibal do to him. So, G.K., talk me through the ancient battlefield in, in a battle, just generically, h- how battles would unfold. And I know that, that me- battles had many different patterns, but the different forces that would be deployed by the Roman side, what Scipio need to take into consideration? How are those forces just generically used to engage with the adversary? You know, what What is he controlling? And... What are the strengths and weaknesses of those forces? Well, since we're talking about the uh, Second Punic War, we can make a comparison in that regard between the Carthaginians and the Romans. The Carthaginians fought as uh, a massed phalanx. Now, we're not quite sure exactly what the nature of that phalanx was, whether it was more Macedonian or more of the Greek uh, you know, lineup of, of soldiers, but it was a blocked formation of, uh, of massed uh, soldiers with spears and swords, uh, the spear being the primary weapon used as a stabbing weapon. Yeah, not thrown. Not thrown. Okay. Uh, that's a javelin, and that's different. Right. And the, the Romans, however, did not fight in that such a block formation. Rather, they divided themselves up into smaller groups, uh, cohorts and mandibles, which were arrayed in a checkerboard fashion on the battlefield. And that gave them far more maneuverability. If they needed to mass, they could back up and close up those checkerboards and form a a single front. If they needed to spread out, they could very easily move laterally. And uh, they also, that gave them a possibility of of maneuvering to the flanks where others, uh, you couldn't do that in a massed phalanx because obviously there were people to your left and right that were in your way. But the Carthaginians kind of compensated for that by using their cavalry very effectively on the flanks, right? That was their... Yes, they did. And both forces made use of skirmishers of various sorts. Uh, They could be slingers, they could be archers, they could be uh, musicians. um, They could be uh, simple, lightly armed foot soldiers that uh, would run around without the the impediment of armor that uh, those who were in either the mandibles or the uh, phalanx would have to wear. And, uh, but, but they were very effective as, as a quick maneuver element. They were sort of the tanks of the era, which is kind of unusual when we think about it. We think of tanks being heavily armored, uh, but it was the mobility which makes a difference for the tank, and it's the same process with these. These mobile uh, forces on the side could be very effective. And how, did, how, did he, how would he exercise command and control of these forces during a battle? Did they use, like, percussion trumpets how are how are they signaling to different elements or and and are they pushing command you know you talk about maneuver of the maniple so is that maneuver choice at what level is that choice being made is it at the command of the level of the maniple or is it someone who's commanding multiple maniples together uh you can see that just by the very nature of the the uh the formation a smaller commander, a centurion in the Roman offering would have far more authority to, to operate independently than uh, the Carthaginians because they were in a massed formation and a single commander, to usually Hannibal himself, or a direct 
uh, lieutenant to him would be in charge of that particular formation. In the Roman formation, the centurions and the, the um, tribunes were expected to exercise a lot more independent judgment and close up as necessary to protect their own flanks and their own ranks. That couldn't be done. But the predominant singling device was, in fact, music. It was trumpets uh, with trumpet calls, drum beats, and, you know, uh, to include lots of times kettle drums that were mounted on horses mm-hmm. so they could go to certain places and make their signals. But the musician was not just there to, to make tunes. He was there <laughs> as a signaling device. He was the communicator of his age. If you were to kind of weigh the significance of a commander at, at this time, um, was it all really in the array of the forces right up to the time that battle would commence? I, I'm trying just, in my mind, I'm trying to kind of Imagine what it's like to be in one of these battles and the noise, right? And just the the chaos of of combat, ground combat. Uh, and, and I'm trying to understand the significance of the commander during a, a battle, right? And obviously commanders are exercising a lot of control up to the start of the engagement. But can you, do we have a sense of how much control a commander could maintain or retain during a battle? Uh, Often they had far less than we would think they would. And that was simply because the battle was so chaotic and and so confusing. We we find it hard to picturize in our mind what it's like when you're standing shoulder to shoulder with with other uh, foot soldiers. You have people in front of you who are also shoulder to shoulder with their uh, compadres and you're busy slashing at each other. The blood flow is 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 palpable. It's a stream in literal stream in many cases. It creates a field of mud if you end up being in the same place at the same time for a long period of time. It's confusing. People are going left and right. There are arrows flying through the air, sling stones bouncing off your helmet, uh, and it's very hard to command and control that. The Roman solution to that, of course, was a delegation of authority down to the centurion, the ones who would command a a formation of essentially 10 by 10 uh, troops. The Carthaginian approach was the opposite. That was to block everybody into a large formation so that you essentially could move forward and very poor maneuverability to the flanks, but it could be controlled very easily by by a single unit and a single commander making a single set of signals. So it's a, it's a very difficult thing for us to imagine, but it, it, it depends largely on your ability to read terrain. The selection of terrain, the selection of the battlefield is key uh, because that, the one who owns the terrain, even in a micro sense, where the ditches are, where the high ground is, has a remarkable advantage in what he can do to set his plan. But often that plan has to be very simple. It has to be very effective, and the element of surprise is used... Uh, very carefully and cautiously by both sides in the Second Punic War in order to to get very effective operational effects on the battlefield. So we've, we've talked about some aspects of ancient warfare that are really different from uh, modern warfare. If we were to take Scipio from his time and put him in our time and give him command of a, you know, an army division. What do you think would be familiar to him, GK? And what do you think would be really unfamiliar to him? Like what would stand out for him about modern warfare 
as as being surprisingly familiar and what would stand out for being just surprising? <laughs> That's a good question. I think one of the things that would stand out to be surprising is the range and the lethality of modern weapon systems. He would he would he would find that almost magical in its ability to to cause effects at such a great distance. That's not something he's he's used to and accustomed to. In the ancient world, effects were accomplished by closing with your enemy. And uh, and that that factor is what dominates the ancient battlefield. You have to close with your enemy in order to, to deal effectively with them. Uh, whereas today, we can operate at distances which are which would be, t- to Scipio, unfathomable, inter- intercontinental, uh, inter-island, you know, crossing the Mediterranean from Africa into southern Europe, crossing uh, into to France from on the Normandy beaches at D-Day, and uh, and making the distances which are coverable. That that would not be something I think that would be easy for him to handle, uh, just because of the vast distances involved. On the other hand, something that would be very familiar is reliance on your, your subordinates. Uh, the fact that there is a rank structure, that it's, it's stratified even more so probably than in Scipio's time, would be something that he'd be accustomed to. The personal relations skills, the, uh, the ability to communicate to your commander's intent, your ability to deal with your enemy's uh, expectations and set them up in, a, in an unusual way. The ability to negotiate with uh, potential enemies and make them potential and sometimes not only potential friends, but staunch allies, as he did with the Numidians. How do you think he would handle the political context of, of war today? Do you think he'd be prepared based on his own performance within his political context? You know, I'm not sure how that would apply across the, the vast centuries of all ancient warfare, but for the Second Punic War, the dealing with national politics was— something that both Scipio and Hannibal had to do on a regular basis. Hannibal's biggest enemy was not the Romans. It, were, it was factions back in Carthage. Uh, Which often saw him actually as kind of a foreigner because he was, he was a Barkid. He, he wasn't really from Carthage, right? He, that's he, right. He yeah. was from Spain. Uh, that's where his family had, had most of their holdings. Uh, so you have like faction, factional politics. That's and- right, and getting the resources, uh, even such things as as uh, personnel caps and strength caps on the number of soldiers you can have, were all dictated by both Carthage and Rome. In fact, uh, when Scipio's father initially took the Second Punic War to the Iberian Peninsula, he picked up two legions. Had really had been exiled in, into uh, to Sicily, and uh, were given to him largely because they were just expendable. So the idea of getting your troops, your resources, all that depended upon the political support back home, and it wasn't military support in the sense that everybody was lined up behind you. Uh, there were factions that were anti-Cornelian, and uh, because they were anti-Cornelian, were also anti their war efforts, and they would impede it. So it's a very politicized game that uh, takes place in each of the capitals as well as on the battlefield. And Scipio would just find that, I think, uh, very similar in many ways to what goes on today. You mentioned that he 
sort of retreats into obscurity a little bit after the end of the Second Punic War. And um, in case uh, anyone in the audience doesn't know, so Scipio leads Rome to victory. It's pretty decisive. And he's kind of unfortunate, right? Because, I mean, he's so successful that I think he, he arouses some concerns in the opposition about about his ability to undermine some of Rome's Republican institutions. Uh, the Romans are very paranoid about tyranny and, you know, someone who translates military success into uh, political tyranny. And I, I think that also contributes to his marginalization where there's this overreaction to some extent against him trying to get him back into his corner. He's also able to identify some more finite goals for his strategy in, in defeating Carthage. You, you described Hannibal's goals, which is essentially destroying Rome. Uh, Scipio, it seems like he, he understands that this war can end through a political settlement. That uh, Now, the next generation decides that Carthage must be destroyed, you know, famously the Cato invocation, Cartago delenda est, you know. But that's not Scipio. He's not that way. He, You mentioned his personal interest in defeating Carthage, but his strategy is not an emotional strategy. No, it's powered by by powerful emotions. Again, uh, dealing with the loss of his of his close family, but uh, he is a realist in the sense that he realizes that he does not have to destroy Carthage in order to benefit from the victory, and he his terms at the end are really fairly lenient, uh, but they're also no nonsense terms. He does not let uh, Hannibal dictate anything to which he knows that Rome already has. Uh, Hannibal, for example, offers Rome control of Sicily. Rome already has control of Sicily. So he's, he's nobody's fool, and he's very practical and pragmatic in his approach. GK, you are not an ancient historian, so my last question for you is, what's the source of your interest in military leaders of, of that era? You know, it's a long time ago. It's certainly not modern warfare. How did you end up becoming so interested in this? I think a lot of it has to do with the nature of strategic leadership. That's something which is timeless and which affects us very much today. How do you make a strategic leader? How does one come about? What is the, how much of that is, is genetic? How much of that is, is experience? All those kind of things factor into this. And these two commanders in particular in the Second Punic War, uh, Scipio Apicophanes versus Hannibal, demonstrate that to a remarkable degree. They're very different in many, many ways. They're also very similar in many, many ways. And trying to differentiate between the contrasts and the similarities, I think, is fascinating. And it is directly applicable to what commanders and leaders have to do today at the strategic level. You have to have personal relations skills. You can bungle your strategy, which will negate any operational or tactical success you ever have. And you can, by the use of a skillful strategy, take what would otherwise be a fairly ordinary group of people, uh, the Roman soldier, and convert them into something which on the battlefield is, is unbeatable. And that's exactly what Scipio did. Well, GK, thank you very much for joining us here on A Better Peace. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I know that you like to study these fellows as much as I do, so I wish you well in your efforts as, as you move on. 
Thank you very much for joining us here on A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. We hope that you'll join us next time. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.